Welcome to the Climb Podcast, where we tell extraordinary stories of the African youth. My name is Hadija Tusise, and I'm your host today. When I think of African architecture, I mainly think of how little we learn about its diversity, unique materials and history in schools as well as in the media. Of course, we are all familiar with the iconic pyramids of Egypt, but could we say the same for the Great Mosque of Jene in Mali, the Basotho Houses in Lesotho, or the Kasubi Tombs in Uganda, for example? Born and raised in Conakry, the capital of Guinea, today's guest is Abubakar Siddiqui Komara, a young architect who founded Kalumbanki, a non-profit organization which aims to build affordable and sustainable housing for the communities of the central neighborhood of Kalum in Guinea. Currently based in the United States of America, Abubakar went to UC Berkeley where he won multiple awards for his work. Talking to Abubakar, what struck me the most was his attachment to his roots, his devotion to his community, and his powerful vision for the future of architecture on the continent. In this episode, Abubakar explained to me how he takes inspiration from indigenous African architecture and how his team is improving the living conditions of poor communities in Guinea, one house at a time. But before diving into his work, I asked him to describe what his childhood in Guinea looked like. So I was born in Conakry, in a neighborhood called Bonfim, which is where my mom still lives today. So my dad was a civil engineer and he was working with construction. So he was a um, civil engineer slash architect, but not official architect. So he would make building plans. He would um, do the work on buildings so like our house he designed it and he built it so i was um, sort of surrounded by him because he would take me to work we'll hang out all the summers we'll go to his job you know but then the way my childhood was my parents got married when i was eight so we were living at first at bonfin then we moved to my father's house which was a neighborhood called kisoso and living in a house because my father has uh three children was my big sister me and my brother And at the time we were living there, it was like me, my sister, and a bunch of other cousins and relatives. So we had about 25 people in our house at times. So for me, for example, I had to share my bedroom with six other boys. My mom would cook probably like five kilograms of rice a day. And when we were eating together, it's like a big bowl and you have 10, 15 people sitting around. And you have to be first fast. <laughs> If you're not fast, you're not going to eat enough. And you have to be able to eat hot food too. My dad also, like when I was growing up, we had this notion of, because we were like six to seven boys at different times or eight even sometimes around the same age. That means we were all getting, we were getting in trouble all the time. So he, he has this rule, all for one, one for all. So if there is any issue that happens in the house, He's not going to ask who did it. The first thing is everybody's going to get corrected first before he asks who did it. In 2008, Abubakar's father sadly passed away. At the time, he was just a teenager in high school trying to figure out what he would study at university. He later found solace walking in his father's legacy. 
when I was in 12th grade, that's when, that's when my father passed. And sort of like when I lost my father, I was getting close to being done with high school. Being done with high school meant I had to choose a career path. And I was like, oh, I don't know. I want to do something close to what my dad did because I wanted to keep that connection. Um, but I also didn't want to necessarily do civil engineering um, for many reasons. And um, so I just kept going and architecture and civil engineering were sort of like the two choices. And when I was choosing, I selected architecture first. And that's where I was sent ultimately. Growing up in a tight-knit and diverse community, Abubakar noticed various housing issues that affected people around him. I would say the number one problem that I saw around me is poverty. And, and that, that started with my own family, like not having food um, every day at noon. Like some days having to wait for, uh, for your dad to come back from work for you to be able to have access to food at the end of the day. And that was my family sometimes, but we had fun, food on the table most of the time. But I had neighbors, friends who that was their daily living. So they had to, the mother had to wake up, um, go sell the soap that she made the day before. And then after she sells that, she buys food to come back home and cook that by the end of the day. And then if you go to a place like Kalumbang, for example, the project that I ended up taking on, we always, as kids, I didn't live in Kalum, but we would make fun of people that live in Kalum to say, oh, you, you, you guys live in, you sleep in turns because the concept was they didn't have enough space for everybody to be sleeping at the same time. So you had dads, moms that sleep at night, kids that sleep in the daytime. And then I think waste management, lack of sanitation are key issues that we face in Guinea. My goal is how do you combine the architectural knowledge plus um, local economic development knowledge, understanding how the local practices work in order to provide housing solutions or um, solutions that would be promoting some sort of uh, urban productivity and allowing families to um, have access to employment and income to provide for themselves. Abubakar tells me more about what prompted him to create Kalumbonki, an NGO which aims to provide housing to the underserved. Kalumbonki initially started as a class. When I was at UC Berkeley, my third year of architecture school, we had a visiting professor. Um, her name is Marianne Ray, and she was visiting from the University of Michigan. And she had this class about one called One Room Dwellings of the 21st Century. So like, putting the problematic of how much space do we really need in a home and the typical homes that we have right now mansions and you have people living in 35 bedroom houses that they're probably occupying five bedrooms or you have 25 living rooms that you're not even using so asking this question looking at places like china places like uh, Japan and the use of space that people have done um, because of high densified um, um, cities. And for me, the main concern, the main challenges or at least challenges that I knew about were those that were back home. So I just, in my head, I thought about, yeah, we always talked about people in Kalum sleeping in turns why were they sleeping in turns and i also had friends from kalum i had I lived in kalum at times like go 
spend time with family. So you, I knew that. And uh, I was like, oh, oh, that could actually be a good, uh, this could be an opportunity to solve, this could be a sol- an opportunity to find a solution to this instead of thinking, oh, they don't have enough space. How can you turn that space that they have into a better space for them to use? So that was like, okay, all right, let's, let's, let's look, dive into it. So at the end of this class, I had developed a, a prototype of home that's um, three meters by eight meters. Abu Bakr explains to me how his solution-based approach is rooted in indigenous African architecture. There's a concept of homes in the U.S. that's called shotgun homes. And these are homes that were brought to the U.S. through slave trade. So they came, it's a, it's a housing concept that's historically embedded in the, in the Western or West Af- in West Africa. And the shotgun that's now seen as a house that's elongated where you can go through the front door all the way to the back door and it's like a series of rooms. And these houses were built because they're easy to build and um, they prob- they gave black people a sense of uh, going back home and a sense of uh, ownership. And so I was trying to use a concept that was also embedded into, into our culture. So I took the notion, the concept and also myself, like migration. So the Kalumbangi was called Kalumbangi, a migration of architecture. My own migration to understand, because living Guinea, coming to the US, learning architecture and being able to learn new things, but then how do you bring, how do you migrate that back? So the key was using a housing concept that also was from Africa, that migrated into this place, and then migrating back. So when you look at our Kalumbangi prototype, it's the same thing because the materials that you're seeing are materials that we see every day, but they're being used differently. It's like if you look at the walls, like inside, the concept was you have a one bedroom, uh, no, you have a one living space that's open in the day and at night turns into three bedrooms, a, a room for the, the, the parents, a room for the boys, and a room for the girls. So the, the concept of, okay, we're using... African fabric, African mats to create these walls. Like we want to see an architecture that's reflective of the African culture. Identity seems to be a topic that Abu Bakr feels strongly about. And I was curious to know why, in his opinion, Africans seem to feel little pride about their own architectural traditions. I think that's another problem that I'm trying to solve is that I feel like the architecture in Africa or in Guinea lacks identity at times and we have been moving away from the identities that um, we've had for centuries for years architecture in africa has an identity and we have been moving away from that because of self-hate because of um, changes because of architects not really wanting to embed their architecture into their surroundings they just want to do something that's similar to the west and I think that's something that I also wanted to address. I asked Abu Bakr to share his perception of the main challenges African architects face today. I think the challenges uh, in architecture back home, I think the biggest challenge for me right now is cost. I think the cost of building architecture is so elevated that there is no way. Like if you look at, um, there are books about, there are studies about the backlog of housing in Africa. Every single African 
country um, is has a backlog of housing. So that varies from three million, fifteen million, some are two hundred thousand, hundred thousand. So there is a need for housing. And currently, if we take the case of Guinea, the average home is probably like I mean, land sometimes will cost you hundred thousand or two hundred thousand or even a million dollars. And then you have a home that's been built for an average hundred thousand, two hundred thousand. When you have the minimum wage at fifty dollars a month, there's no way those people are gonna have access to housing. So I think the biggest challenge in my head is how architects are solving that problem. And the really solution is we need to go back to our ways. Like we didn't have money before, but we had architecture. We had people housed in homes. We used to build our own homes. We used to build them using materials that were local or that we're familiar with. We just need to go back and learn from that. So I think that's one challenge. And another challenge that I can think about is climate change. I think in our countries, people don't understand the issue of climate change. People don't understand the fact that we cannot continue building cement blocks. We cannot continue building with cement because cement is a finite resource. We cannot continue building with CMU blocks. First, um, these concrete blocks increase the, the cost of the housing because a lot of it is being imported from other countries. So we're not producing this. So the cost of, of the construction is heightened because of lack of access to those resources at home. So you have to go buy and industries, you know, they cost more. Um, and when they come, it doesn't necessarily solve the problem because if you build, build out of cement, it means that people typically don't have enough windows and then the thermal mass of the cement doesn't allow to cool down in the houses. So it's like hot at night. So you have to turn on the AC. Turning on the AC increases the cost of energy and we don't have any energy. Energy is a big problem that we face. We cannot transform our resources. Instead of taking that energy and turning it into industries that would allow us to grow as a community, we're using that into just trying to cool down. And I don't think the solutions are far away. Like we're so blessed to have so many resources, natural resources, local resources that turn into good construction materials. And this has been proven for years. Our ancestors have been building these ways for years. We don't have to look far. We just need to go do it. But people in the head don't want that. Like there is a complex. We don't want to build with mud anymore because if you build with mud, you're considered poor. You, you feel like you want to build strong, which is like an illusion. Because they're like, everyone talks about safety, but no one talks about the lack of resources, the lack of employment, what is leading to um, on insecurity. So we need to really address those problems. And I feel like architects have to be players um, within. And of course, how can we talk about housing in Africa without addressing communities living in slums? On that topic, Abubakar believes that demolishing is not the solution. Slums are forgotten. No architects really, most architects don't care about slums. It's like, oh yeah, we just want to destroy those slums and replace them. I don't believe in that notion. I believe that those slums are part of our history and I think they need to be preserved. What can we do to ameliorate, to improve the living conditions in those slums? I think that is the question. And that's also part of sustainability. Sustainability means we have limited resources. So you can't just destroy. It means we have to reuse stuff. Like slums, how do we turn slums into some other thing 
that's providing people economic opportunities, also providing them clean, safe housing. I asked Abu Bakr how architecture can create opportunities for communities and improve their well-being. We have these construction methods that are not necessarily accessible elsewhere that we have not been um, developing. So there is an opportunity to use the labor force in these countries to teach them these new ways of construction and make them into pioneers into these new construction methods. And they can turn themselves into builders. They can build their own communities and they can build other communities beyond their communities. So creating maker spaces, working with the locals to also increase the, the touristic potential. Like we as a continent have really beautiful places. We have very beautiful spaces. We have a, a beautiful culture. How do we improve the artisanal um, industry in our homes? That's another aspect like how do you work with communities to create um, community-based organizations that are centered around creating what are the economic opportunities so like any space that you build any space that you create what is its economic footprint on the uh, on the on the local population i think that is an important question that needs to be included into architecture it's not just we built this house it's great, and then that's it. But it has to provide resources to the users. Abu Bakr explained why he strongly believes that the road to better housing resides in home-based expertise and resources. I think the solutions tend to be within our countries. And really think about how do we solve the inequality problem in our countries? Because there is no way we can be successful with inequalities in our countries, meaning people need to have access to the basic infrastructures. Um, when everybody needs to have access to clean sanitation, it's crazy. Like sanitation is one of the most impactful things in the world and to the economy too. I when I was at uh, LSE, there's a paper that I have presented on that proves that. If you have over 70% lack of access to sanitation, it means that 90% likely to not be developed. So sanitation, which means translates into health issues, health problems, um, needs to be addressed. So really, people need to go back and make sure that everyone has access to a decent life. All the solutions have to be embedded within the local context, within the local realities, within the interest of the locals. So the solutions have to be created with the people at the base, but having some guidelines. Of, we're going to use only local resources. But then again, there seems to be a stubborn inferiority complex towards Western architecture. I asked Abu Bakr why he thinks that is and how we can shift mentalities. We were taught that anything that's us is not good. To reject our blackness, you see our women or men bleaching their skin. Uh, we were taught that our architecture is a villageois architecture, the villageois, like even in our villages now we want to build with CMU blocks. The colonization of our mind was the biggest hurt to humanity. And 
until we ourselves start thinking that, okay, what we have is actually the best thing that we've ever had. We're never going to be able to uh, create any lasting change. The mind has to be cured. How do you cure the mind is there has to be a group of us, the new generation, really coming up with ideas. And instead of being, that's one thing about African politicians. I think African politicians just like to talk. And we just want to talk about solutions or talk about what visions we have. But no one, no one, even if they had so much money for the past 20 years, have done any examples of what they want to see change. I think we have to be a solution-focused people. We have to create these examples of solutions that we want to see. We can't just continue saying, oh, yeah, uh, this is uh, a problem. I want to solve this problem without any action to follow. Like people need to have actual actions for people to see and people to learn from it. You have to create something new, something that's even beyond people's imagination with the architecture that we've had as an inspiration, as the base. So those are actions that I personally want to take in the future. And I feel like many people should be taking those similar actions within their different categories to teach people because another issue is lack of education. And education doesn't have to necessarily mean Western education. We have been educated over time, over over centuries with our cultural values and things like that. But today we're losing that. We need to go back and re-question what's the type of education that we want to give to our communities or children. No one else is going to come from outside to solve our problems. We have to solve our problems ourselves. And if we give up, our kids, the future generation is never going to see the light. As we were coming near the end of this episode, Abubakar explained to me why he thinks the future of African architecture requires the contribution of the whole community and why we should draw inspiration from traditional knowledge and practice. I believe that we as a people need to come together to think about these designs. Like that's the one thing that's the most um, subjective about architecture. It's like archi- the, the star architect that come in has the vision, tells people to do everything. I think that's not necessarily our process. Our process has been you have women, mothers building their homes, designing it, building it themselves you don't necessarily need the, the 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 architect but i think at this stage we need people that are thinking about the materiality are thinking about the context they are thinking about the economic impact so those are essential and i think not only one person can come up with this solution but we need a team of people to come together to come to come up with a solution. But for me, the solution that I envision is a solution that's embedded in our local context that's reflective of African culture. Is there an African architecture? Is there an African art? So when I see the Nimba, I know it's from Guinea. I want to be able to see an architect and say it's from Guinea. We talk about, when we talk about in in architecture school and when they teach architecture history, the canons are all from Western countries. They don't show us any canons in Africa, like go to Ethiopia, go to Lalibela. You see these churches that were made, carved into mountains. Like, you go to Egypt, the pyramids. You go to Zimbabwe. Like, there are so many different architects, architectures that were done that are African. So how do we look at those to create a more African architecture that is centered 
around African culture. Before ending this conversation, I had to ask Abu Bakr what kind of legacy he would like to leave behind. What would he like the next generation to remember about his work? After 20-50 years, I want to feel like I achieved something. I want to feel like I did something for my people to evolve uh, in this society. Because daily, I see a lot of ton of inequalities that, are, that keep proving that the Black race, we are at the bottom of every society in every country. So I consider myself a Pan-Africanist. I'm African first before I'm Guinean. And I want to solve problems that we face. I, and I want us to be considered equal to any other race. I want us at the end to create our own resources. I want, uh, we, I want us to be on a same equal field as others. So for me, I just don't want to work for a company and get paid and just take care of my family. That's good. That's for many people. But I want to be able to have a lasting impact and be remembered for, I don't know, for some time for the work that I, I did. And for that, you need to do the work and you, it has to be meaningful. This conversation with Abu Bakr left me incredibly inspired. It made me remember that too often, as Africans, we tend to forget how uniquely gifted we are and how our voices and talents are just as essential as any other. And for you, dear listener, I hope this episode motivated you to learn more about African architecture and our rich history in general. I would like to thank Abu Bakr for talking to us and for his meaningful work in Guinea. I invite you all to follow him and the Kalumbonki team on social media. You'll find all the links to his work in the description box of this episode. Thanks for tuning in and see you next time.